welcome to a new episode of the Shaken and Stirred show. I'm Nigel Barker in New York and we are having a serious thunderstorm today, guys. So if you hear a clash of lightning, if you hear a rumble of thunder, if I sound a little mysterious, more so than usual, it is not expensive sound effects, although I, I think I might try and record them and import them for future podcasts. It is, in fact, the weather. But we are bringing it today. We are going to be taking it to a whole new supreme level. We have an incredible guest, an old friend of mine. We've worked together. We've been on shows together. We've been talking heads and experts. And he's here to talk about some fantastic, new, exciting things that he's got going on in his life. And uh, I've sort of given it away a little bit. Our guest this week is entertainment reporter and former model whose work as a fashion stylist is featured in magazines such as Elle, British GQ, Grazia, InStyle, British Vogue, and on and on and on. He regularly appears on shows, on channels even, like ABC, CBS, CNN, NBC. You've heard them all, including UK's ITV, over the, all my friends in Britain. There you go. You, you will have heard of him as well. As an entertainment reporter, he re resides in Los Angeles. He's also the executive producer of an upcoming documentary, Supreme Models, based on his best-selling book. And he has a new book, Supreme Actresses. Please welcome Marcellus Reynolds. Marcellus, how are you? <laughs> I am fantastic. I love that intro, by the way. Thank you. I think, sometimes you. I think sometimes you forget all the things that you do. But yeah, all of that. <laughs> Everything. All of that and, and more, I'm sure. I know that you're a man of, who does many things and I've been following along for, for years. Ever since before we'd met, of course, I was familiar with your work and who you were. But you know the part I didn't know, and, and it's not a surprise, but I didn't know that you were a model back in the day. What was I mean, you've done a book on Supreme Models, right? Which is, you know, and I want to get to Supreme Actresses, but you yourself are a model. So we've got a lot in common. And now looking at the old bone structure, I can see it now. You know, you and I, I'm missing my hair as well. Well, not missing, but it's not there completely. So people often say to me, well, you're a model? And I'm like, well, yes, but I did not look like this. So what was your modeling days like? Um, so I was, I have like the crazy quintessential like discovery story. I was working my way through college. I was an English major and a theater. No, I was a theater. No, I was an English major and a theater okay, minor. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago because my mother would not pay for school for me to be a theater major. So I had to take it as a minor and she was helping me. So I was waiting tables at a restaurant and a woman who turned out to be an agent was my first table of the day for lunch. And it turned out to be Marie Anderson who had discovered Cindy Crawford. And she right. like the list of people that she discovered was like kind of legendary. And she she was her partner actually looked up at me when I walked up to the table and her partner was like, you should be have, you're very attractive. You should be a model. And the three ladies started laughing and I thought they were hitting on me. So I was like, you should have the salmon. What do you do? You know? I was just like that. Then all of a sudden they all pulled out cards and it turned out that, that Marie was the person that discovered Cindy Crawford, Colin Egglesfield, and the Riker brothers, and they had this agency in Chicago, and that's how it started. Literally, like my first, um, like within, like gosh, like I think like a month, I had my first booking, and I worked with like you know I had a good time from '95 to 2000. That's what I did. I lived all over the world. 
um, worked with like Bruce Weber, worked with Skripnesky, worked with Dalin, worked, you know, I was a, a high-end catalog boy and just really loved it. It was a crash course in sophistication. So your, your, your basically career started where mine left, right? So I was from 89 to 96 and I carried on doing bits and pieces up until sort of the late 1990s, but I, was, I became a photographer um, in 94 and established my first studio in New York City in 96. So, but before we get into all of that, and I can, we could go on and we're gonna go on because this is a really exciting episode where we're getting into fashion, we're getting into models, but we're getting into actresses as well, right? So, and we're gonna talk about um, the story of black models, black actresses, uh, and, and, and what it's been like for them to really get to the top of the business. And it's been a struggle and it's still a struggle, everyone. Um, and you know that from many of the stories that I've told on Shaken and Stirred, also my own books, about the subject, models of influence, uh, and what it's like to actually change the fashion industry. Well, Marcellus has written books that talk about that, but also about the entertainment industry as well. And we're gonna get into it. But what are you drinking before we get there? Let's set ourselves up with a cocktail. Okay, so I am drinking, now see, I'm bringing out my bartender skills from like 1997, so I'm here. I bought it, I actually, when I got the podcast, I actually bought like a new bar setup and everything. So it's I all like it. spray new and shiny. So I am making a pink angel. It's a play on a white angel. And the white angel was the cocktail that Audrey Hepburn drank in Breakfast at Tiffany's. So it was Holly awesome. Golightly's cocktail of choice. And that's my second favorite movie character ever. And um, I think it's apropos. <laughs> Very apropos. And it's a martini of sorts, is it not? It, it is a martini. You can serve it on the rocks but you and you can serve it up, but I'm gonna do it up. So I've already chilled my rocks glass my little stemless martini glass. Um, it. it is two ounces of vodka. So I chose kettle one. So yeah, wait, sure. okay, so now I'm gonna put ice out of my fancy new ice bucket. And I love that you're making it and you're right here in front of us. And this is this new thing that's happened in the Shaken and Stirred show. Back in the day, people would just come with a cocktail already made. And I always used to ask them and they never really knew how to make it. And I think people have listened to the podcast and now they come and they realize, actually, I'm going to make my own right here, oh, right now. I and it's love been it. all this year, everyone, every week, someone makes their own drinks. Fantastic. I think it's the most fun. And I got to, you know, any excuse, you know, I'm a fashion stylist as well as all the other things I do. So any excuse to shop. So literally the moment that I booked it, I was like, let me start buying my like whole bar. I wanted a real official bar setup too. So I did that. So now it is two ounces of vodka and I chose kettle one because you know, why not? So that goes in there. It is two ounces of gin which makes me sound like an alcoholic, but you know, what the heck. And you went with a, a sapphire. I went with Bombay Sapphire. Bombay I sapphire. Had a little explosion right there. Um, and I, you know what, the only reason I went with Bombay Sapphire is because it's a classic and because I love the color of the bottle, still to this day. Um, <laughs> okay, so a real, um, a real martini would have vermouth. That's the difference between a pink, between the um, white angel, it doesn't have vermouth. But for me, I like it a little bit sweeter. So I have some um, fruit punch that I'm adding. It's supposed to be just the splash, right? So it's, it's almost a slight, you're slightly Cosmoing it a little bit. It, it, it is almost like a Cosmo, isn't it? But who wants to drink Cosmos? They're kind of passe. So now I'm gonna shake it. <laughs> 
We're not doing Sex in the City, people. We're doing Supreme Models right now. We're doing Supreme Models right now. Now I straight. Oh, and the best thing is I found this vintage strainer online, and I was like, I have to have that. So I strain it into my glass. And I love oh that because you're doing a double strain. It strain. strains through the top of the bottle, and then you're straining it through the thing as well. So yes, double strain. It's a beautiful shade of pink. Voila. And then Voila. how fantastic. I have a little twist action, so I'm taking the I'm taking the twist around the rim, you know, He's as they do. The twist around the rim, people. Look at listen to this. You can make this alongside Marcellus right now, and you can have yourself a pink angel. And I, my friend, have done the reverse. I actually went for the angel. So I've got the straight up angel because I asked you what you were making, and I thought I'd do the reverse. So <laughs> mine right here is two parts gin, and I used um, it's called uh, Old Gin Lane. Uh, which is one of my favorite gins. It's a fortified gin that they do, which is particularly strong. It's 90% proof, uh, fortified gin, uh, old gin lane. Um, and it's two jiggers to, and I did two jiggers of vodka. So I actually did double the quantity. So okay. jigger being two ounces. So if mine, that's why mine's a little bit bigger than yours. Um, and I used the vermouth. So I used the Lillet vermouth, which gives it the color because it's got a, that bit of a color to it. Um, and um, there you go. So I cheers, no twist, straight. Cheers, my friend. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -mm -mm. Delicious. I feel oh, like having, I feel like good. Audrey Hepburn myself right now. <laughs> All right, so let's get right into it. You've got two books: Supreme Models and now Supreme Actresses. What was the inspiration to get into writing books and on this subject? You know, and the Supreme concept. You know what, Nigel, it's all full circle for me because I always, when, when I was, well, my dream from, a, from being a child was to be an actor, but I grew up very poor on the South side of Chicago. So that seemed like definitely, um, it seemed more of a fantasy even than a dream. And so I was very smart growing up, very practical. I excelled in like English and history. Um, and I knew that I would be, I could write. Right. I knew from a very early age, I spoke well, I loved language, I knew that I could write. And so I always thought I would either be a writer or I would be an English professor. Mm -hmm. And when I was working my way through college, I like, you know, it was like kind of an intensive and I loved English and I loved those classes and I loved writing classes, even though I was still taking acting classes along the way. But um, I always knew I had a book in me. I didn't know that it would be this book but I knew I had a book in me. I just didn't know when I would have the opportunity to write it. And, um, you know, the discovery, the model discovery was what changed the course of my life. Immediately, I was two years into my degree. I got discovered, I started working right away and I was in New York right away. And I just saw it as this wonderful opportunity to change everything. The money right off was really good. And I met like, in incredible, fascinating people. And in a weird way, fashion was very welcoming to me as a gay man, right? And so I was this little black kid from the South side of Chicago and I didn't have this ideal like childhood and adolescence because of my homosexuality. So finally I was in this world where like every door was open and everybody was like warm and friendly and didn't care about like, my gayness. In fact, sometimes my gayness was an asset because as a model, I almost had no restraints 
You know, when the photographer asked me to dance, I danced. When the photographer asked me to jump, I jumped. When Victor Skubneski was like, I want to see joy, I get, I gave you joy. I was like, wait, what level of joy do you want? Do you, you know, like, I'm like, do you want all the top joy? Do you want like a little bit of joy? Do you want happiness? You know, I was like there and I loved all of that. I love the artistic, I love talking to photographers and, and hearing what they what their inspirations were and what we were gonna do that day. I loved working with the stylists on what the outfit was. I love working with the art directors and the hair and makeup people. I just absolutely loved it. So I just jumped right into it and never looked back. And it was the thing that changed my life. I was never, I was never gonna go to London. I was never gonna go to Paris. I was never gonna work in Milan before this. I lived all over the world for like five solid years and enjoyed every single moment of it. Did you have a favorite location that you worked in? I, okay, this sounds crazy because I was, I worked a lot in New York, of course, so I will always love New York. I loved London because that was the first place that I went that was like overseas, right? And it um, still felt like America because it didn't, you didn't have the language barrier. And I worked all the time doing catalog in London, but I went to London thinking I was gonna become an editorial boy. And so I ended up leaving London and going to Milan where I didn't work at all, honestly, as a model. Well, I ended up doing, um, fit modeling for Brioni. That's how I paid the bills. And it was so crazy to leave to leave London where I was working a lot and then also going to Paris to work every now and then to go to Milan and not work. But it felt like- Why really do you think that was? Why, why do you think you did? And it's funny because I remember back in the day living in Milan and you know that at that point it was work for black models was, was few and far between. So they, they, you know, they would be on perhaps you know, the odd shoot where, or the odd runway show where they needed to have perhaps represent and there might be a, a, a black model walking down the runway, but they were not, it was not a frequent thing. And you certainly did not see a lot of black people in Milan, just in period, forget about it, modeling, just living there, right? So was that a part of it? Do you think it was a part of a sort of systemic racism or is it just a fact that, what, what was it something else? I don't want to put words into your mouth. No, Nigel, it was exactly that. I had been scouted in Chicago by fashion in Milan. And they were like, oh my God, you have to come. You're gonna do so well, blah, blah, blah. And then when I got there, granted I didn't tell them I was coming so they weren't really prepared for me to come. But when I got there, it was like hit the ground running. And I had friends that were in Milan and that's why I kind of went over. And honestly, it was like, but I got there before show season. So there was really no, there was really no reason for me to be there because there was so little work for black boys. There was just, there was no work for black people in general. Yeah. And that's just the way it was in fashion. And I remember going around to like agencies and being told we don't represent any black models, but I had been told that in other markets before consistently. And so I was like, okay. So I finally signed with Beatrice and we started like sending me out. But I, what I noticed was my male roommates would have like four or five castings a day. And I would be lucky if I got that in a week. So I got great castings because I was one of the few black people in Milan, right? So I got to see Armani. I got to see Olivia, Tosc Olivia Toscani, um, Toscano. 
I got to see the um, the team at Benetton. I got to see Aldo Falad. I got these great request castings that maybe were better than the, the people, my my roommates at the time, because they were like, by the time show season started, there were like nine guys in the one bedroom. With Luckily, we had a bathroom en suite. This is the real um, life of models, everybody. You think it's super glamorous. It's actually half the time it was just like this. It's like nine people in one bedroom apartment. It was not glamorous at all. It was at first there was it was me and another guy and that guy had been there for like years and was kind of not really even a model anymore. And his thing was like dancing for dollars. And he was dancing so for dollars, everyone. That's a legendary expression for those of you who don't know what that is. It's mostly it makes it, 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 well, you can tell them, but it's going to nightclubs or going to places where they would pay models to hang out. You didn't have to dance. It was essentially you had to be there so that pretty people were guaranteed at the club or at the restaurant, right? Dancing for dollars. That's right. Dancing right? for dollars. And when you would go, I stayed at the Polo, which is this legendary pension. And when you would go downstairs, the PRs, the PR people would be downstairs and they would see you and they'd be like come to the club tonight come here to dinner tonight come do this da, 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 da. and you could make like you know like maybe a hundred american dollars for that night which was like you know good money to keep you enough to keep you in in the city luckily i had money coming in from from having been a you know working model in london and in the u.s so and i had savings so i wasn't dancing for dollars um but anyway um I ended up staying a very good friend, Gail, who was a black model who actually was blonde. Genetically, she was black, light-skinned, she had green eyes. And Gail wasn't really working, but there would be these castings where people would say blondes only. And Gail would go to the castings because she was technically blonde, even though she was black. And they would be like, I'm sorry, we're not seeing blonde, we're not seeing black girls. And she would be like, but you are seeing blondes and I am blonde. Like that was like the level of like, of um, dedication you almost had, you had to have. And I'll tell you another interesting story. I um, had a casting for um, Toscano and I thought he liked me. It was like, it, you know, it, was, it, it went really well. And I got put on hold for Benetton. And I had been there for like a month, right? I had been there just hemorrhaging money for a month. And my agent and Goodfellows in London, Tootie was like, when are you coming back? I've got bookings for you. And I was like, no, I'm staying here because I really want, like I it had it in my head that London was, that Milan was going to be the breakthrough, right? That's where either I was going to book a show and, and get to the next level that way, or I was going to book some crazy editorial and get to the next level that way. And I was having a good time, nine people to a room. My friend Gail lived in the same pension. So I was really enjoying London, even though I wasn't working that much, but I was doing fit modeling for Brioni. So I was actually making pretty good money. And I was learning so much about the parts of a suit. You so know, by the way, everyone out there, you're, you know, we're talking shop right now. So there are things like dancing for dollars, but he just mentioned fit modeling too. And you may be like, well, what's fit modeling? Surely all models are fit. Well, well, first of all, they're not all fit. Some are, some aren't. Uh, that's not a prerequisite of the job. But fit modeling is when you literally go to a design house and they, you are the sample size that they fit the clothes on. You are the perfect size, right? So I, back in the day, used to be a fit model as well for Valentino. And I'd fly to Rome and I would be his, what, his fit model and I did that for years uh, and I worked for his campaigns I did the shows but a part of my job was also being a fit, fit model so he so based on my body the suits were made um, so that's what exactly what Marcellus was doing for Brioni so anyway I'm just being a little dictionary for all of you guys out there when he throws out these terms willy-nilly because he's talking to me okay go ahead so I loved it too 
let me tell you how I got that job. I actually started going to castings with some of my friends that weren't my castings, but I would turn up and I would bring my book and photographers would see me. I tested a lot while I was in Milan. I actually ended up um, shooting Luoma Rogue with Tim Morrison and got two pictures in it. He was doing a men's story because I went to a casting that wasn't mine. And he looked over and saw me and he was like, who are you? Who are you with? Why are you here? And I was like, I'm Marcellus, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at my book and he was like, do you want to do this, this editorial? And I was like, I was like, yes. I was like, yes, please. Bleep. <laughs> Marcellus was like, bleep. Yes, I do. I love that. You see, even the gentleman in him right there at that moment, the hustle is real, people, is what, the, what he's trying to get to here, is that ultimately, in order to get ahead, You've got to push. You've got to do what it takes. You've got to go to castings that you're not invited to. We've had actresses on this show who will tell you that they went to auditions that they were that they weren't in, you know asked to be at, and they actually auditioned and got the role. So sometimes you've got to throw yourself out there. Now, I mean, I feel that, and I want to carry on, but with with this specifically, but you've got two books which aren't about you and you've got a show coming out as well, and we've got a lot to speak to, to get on with here. You know what, all of that drama that I went through when I was modeling, being told, you know, I was too dark, being told I was, there was a, a whole period where I was told I was too skinny and all my black friends were going through the exact same thing, especially the women. You're too short, you're too fat, your hips are too wide, you're too this, we already have one black girl. Like, it was just like, it was like this mind trip. And we would share these like heartbreaking story because, stories because this was our dream. We gave up, most of us walked away from college or walked away from jobs to do this. And we could have done other things, but we wanted that moment of beauty or we wanted success in this industry or we wanted whatever door modeling was gonna open next. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to write Supreme Models because I lived that life as a model and I lived it vicariously through all my black girlfriends. And it was an incredibly hard business for them. I cried with them. I cried for myself. You know, we wanted this so bad and to constantly be told that there's something wrong with you that you can't change. You know what I mean? I had a friend who was told her lips were too big once and it was in the most insulting way. And she had this beautiful mouth, you know what I mean? And that was part of her part, you know, part and parcel of the size of her lips and her wonderful profile was like part of her thing along with her ebony skin. And she took that so hard, you know what I mean? Or like girls that like are like, a, you're like a zero and you're a black girl, but you have hips because genetically you have a butt and you're told you're too fat. And they're like starving themselves to be a zero or a two. You know what I mean? And then you, you just feel devastated or you're at a casting with 300 people and you finally get to the front of the line only to be told then that we're not seeing black people. You couldn't put a sign outside the door to tell us that. And no, you couldn't because you can't write that. You know, you can't put that out there where somebody could actually see it God. and take a picture of it. It's just, it was the hardest business. But then there were moments that were so incredibly beautiful. But it's people like yourself and all the models that you're talking about but that paved the way for change as well and, and, and to change the industry. If you hadn't actually gone through that, suffered through that, you know, all the people. And so talk to me, Supreme Models, before we get to Supreme Actresses, what was the sort of criteria for, for entry for the, for the people you included in the book? 
So let me tell you the reason why I wrote the book. I've always, as a stylist, because I transitioned from being a, from a model into being a fashion stylist. And I've always collected art books um, for inspiration. Right. And I've always watched movies for inspiration. So if you looked around my heart, my apartment right now, there's stacks of art books and stacks of books about photographers and models of influence and, um, and, 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 and just every single book. I even have that Naomi Campbell book, Swan, that she wrote. Um, it's just, that's, that's what I love. And a book came out in 2011 called Vogue Model, and it was the British Vogue book. And they had over 100 models in the book. And it was oversized and it was super expensive. And I got it as soon as it came out. And the day I got it, I read it from cover to cover. And there were only two black models in this book that had over a hundred models in it. And I was incensed. And if you go to, uh, if you go to um, Amazon today, my review of that book is there. And it was like, where is, where is Veronica Webb, the first black model with the cosmetics contract? Where is Tyra Banks, the model as mogul? Where is Alec Wett? Where is Leah Kabidi, the first black model to have an entire issue of Paris Vogue um, dedicated to her? Like I went through all of these like black models, but the most important omission was that the only two models that they had were Iman and Naomi. British Vogue was the first Vogue of any Vogue to put a black model on its cover. Okay. In 1966, they put Danielle Luna on the cover. That yeah. was eight years before American Vogue put Beverly Johnson on the cover. Five years before um, Vogue Italian put Vogue Italia put Carol Labrie on the cover. And they didn't even include Danielle Luna, who's legend. Her story is like amazing. And so it's like a morality tale. You know, to be a little black girl from the south side of Detroit that ends up one of the top models in the world and then dies of a drug over, uh, overdose in Italy, you know, after like being on the cover, the first black woman on the cover of British Vogue, the first black woman on the cover of American Harper's Bazaar. How did she, and, and, a, and a muse for Fellini and, and Andy Warhol. And then that's how she ends, that's how she dies. Like, like. So that was the impetus. That was the moment where I was like, wait, no one has told this story. Yeah. No one has told it in a beautiful way. No one has told it like as, a, as an art book. No one has collected all the beautiful photographs together, the legendary photographs and put them in one space. And that was when that day was the day I decided to do Supreme Models and it took eight years to happen. Now, books are a labor of love. I mean, it's not something that comes, you know, overnight, and especially a book like that, when you're putting together so many stories from so many people, there's a lot of research that has to go into it. There's a lot of photography, you've got to be tracked down. There's release forms on everybody, you know, because there's a lot of different people, a lot of different release forms, a lot of photographers you're dealing with, uh, and all oh, the rest God. of it. And, you know, what was the biggest difference between you think between supreme actresses and supreme models as far as the process we you know who qualified to get into supreme actresses okay so supreme models isn't like isn't like super it isn't because there are very few black supermodels but it was literally girls that made some sort of impact whether they were the first person to model for Prada or they opened you know and closed for um ysl or that sort of thing, or they were the first model 
uh, inside Sports Illustrated, not just the first model on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And what I did was I took the five top fashion clients they worked for and the five top publications that they worked for. That was the criteria. You had to have worked for the biggest magazines in the world. You had to have worked for the best designers. And then I just kept pushing and doing interviews with people and I was still fashion styling. So people would cross my path and I would be like, you know, I'd be in like Milwaukee styling for Coles and the model would be like Lana Ogilvy, who's one, who's the first black model to get a makeup contract with um, CoverGirl. And so I was like, I'm writing a book on black models. And she was like, am I in it? And I was like, absolutely. How about this, Nigel? Veronica Webb wrote the foreword to Supreme Models. I met her when we were doing Meredith Vieira. Wow. I think it was the day where, I think it was you were on that panel and we were talking about eyebrows because Veronica's known for her eyebrows. And literally I went up to her after we were done and I was like, listen, I'm writing a book about top black models. And she was like, how can I help? And she ended up writing the foreword to the book. Her name's on the cover. Amazing. It's unbelievable. Amazing. It's unbelievable. She's, she's, she's obviously a legend in her own right. And, and, and you know, her and I shared the same agent for some time uh, as well. And I got the, the, the pleasure of photographing her um, a couple of times in my career, so you know, which was a blessing. And you mentioned Alec Weck. I actually put a picture of Alec Weck up just today on my Instagram. And, and her and I were, tra- we were conversing over Instagram, Alec and I today, and she's someone who's another extremely legendary um, individual, just in the way she handles herself, if nothing else, other than the fact that she's a hugely successful model in her own right. She's also a real, you know, just a charming, solid, good person who, you know, and likewise, when you do do a post a picture of them, they, they actually comment back and say thank you, you know what I mean, which is, um, in my opinion, in my book, that's a real mark of, of someone who's, uh, you know, just got the class, you know, I but think is the best way to put it, class. There, because of the book, there's, first of all, I had to get permission from each model in the book to use their photo. But once the book came out and they actually saw it, I can't tell you how many of them were like, this is the book I've been waiting for. Thank you so much for doing this book. But what was so crazy was they were thanking me for including them in the book. And I'm like, this isn't a gift I'm just giving you to include you in the book. You're in this book because you you deserve to be in this book. You talk claim about that. Talk about that. What, what were the qualities? Were there certain criteria? Was there a line that you draw? Because I know it's difficult. And I did my book, Models of Influence, and there's 50 in that, in that book. Uh, and it was, you know, you, you do come across like, there is a line like, okay, I can't have everybody because I, I, first of all, you, want, you know, book companies also like to have round numbers. They want to have 50 or 100, like, you know, but you're like, but I've got 56 or I've got 104. They're like, yeah, no, no, it's not the 104 models of so-and-so. That doesn't sound good. From a it becomes like Sophie's Choice, doesn't it? It's like, oh my God, who am I going to cut? Who, like, who has to go? It's awful. So the preferential treatment went to people who did interviews for me and I tried to get interviews from ev- for everyone. There were certain models that did not want to be in the book. And to this day, I don't understand why you would turn down the opportunity to be in this book. And several of them now that they've seen the book are like, wow, I was wrong. That was a mistake. Um, uh, I think the criteria just was, even though it's a book about black models at its core, it's a photography book. So it's literally the greatest living photographers of 
all time. So there's Skrupneski. No, there's not Skrupneski. I'm just obsessed with Skrupneski because he's a friend of mine who just passed away. Um, there's Mizell. There's Demarchelier. There's Testino. There's Klein. There is Scavallo. There's or Scavulo. Um, I always get that wrong. I mean, it, it's it's there, it's it's just everybody. And then it's like it's also modern masters as well. You know, um, Inez and Benoud and 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 um, 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 Emma Summerton. So for me, it was like getting the best possible. It was like compile the list and come up with as many models as you could. Then get the photos. And it came down to like the best possible photos that I could possibly get for each other. And I'm heartbroken because I couldn't clear like Peter Lindbergh. He's not in the book because his photos were so, ex were so expensive. And there's a legendary photo by Annie Leibovitz that Iman commissioned called My Tribe of Beauties. And it's all the black models from like the like late nineties all together. And that was one of the inspirations for the book. And I couldn't clear that photo because Annie wanted too much money. And so it really came down to the, the level of the photographer, the level of the model and, and whether I could clear the photograph and whether I could afford the photograph. Nigel, this book was $75,000 in licensing fees. This was my first book. And I had been told four times, three times by other publishers that a book about black women wouldn't sell and they had turned it down. And these were, and each time that I had been told that, it was because that person had reached out to me and asked me for a meeting wanting to do a book with me. Then when I told them that my idea was a compilation of the top black models ever, they each said, no, this book about that topic won't sell. And now it's a bestseller, so I get to laugh. <laughs> certainly do get to laugh. So I'm assuming then that one, with, with Supreme models under your belt, that Supreme actresses must have been a walk in the park? No, no. <laughs> you know, the past couple of years, I, when, when I signed the deal for Supreme Models, I stopped working yeah. because, yes, Nigel. <laughs> Here we go. I'm showing a copy of Supreme Actresses, everyone out there, if you're not watching. And by the way, you know, you can watch this podcast uh, on YouTube. So at any time you can go to YouTube and watch the whole thing. But of course, if you're just listening along, this is the book and it has a, uh, I mean, the forward is by Gabrielle um, Union. That's pretty amazing, too. Viola, right? I know it's crazy. Viola Davis is on the cover. On the cover. Gabrielle Union did the forward. Lapita Nyong'o agreed to appear on the back cover. So I've got two Oscar winners on the covers. It's just kind of unbelievable. So I will say this: it was easy to do supreme actresses. It was easy to get actresses to do supreme actresses on the strength of supreme models. Unbelievably, it was very hard to sell Supreme actresses. Um, my literary, my God, it was such a, that was, it's, that's such a crazy story, but I'll tell it. Um, um, supreme models had done really well, but the, the first um, printing was huge. So it didn't do well in, 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 um, in comparison to the printing, even though it had done much better than other books that had come out from that publisher that year. 
So when I started pitching Supreme actresses to them, they were like, we think it's too soon to do another book about this topic. So we should wait and see how much better Supreme Models does. So by the way, and so folks out there, a little explanation on that, because I've done a few books in my time as well. What happens sometimes is when a book's on its way out and they're looking at it and they, they see the advanced enthusiasm for it, they place a book order um, for a certain number of books and it costs them money. They have to advance by them. It's not on demand, right? So books are, are placed and they print a whole bunch at once. And the more they print, the cheaper they get it for. So they have to guess how many books they're going to sell. And sometimes they get excited and probably with Supreme Models, but looking at the first rush copy, they were like, oh, this is gorgeous. This is going to do really well. And I don't know the number for you, but I know the number for me when I did mine. And they were like, oh, this is going to do really well. And they went out and they printed in the very first run, uh, they did a run of 25,000 books. And I was like, wow, that's way more than we had agreed to. And we had a contract, uh, you know, and, and part of my contract said that we were going to do uh, a first print of 10,000. So it was more than double. Right. So they went from 10 to 25. Right. So then what happens is you may then sell a lot. And by the way, to get into the New York Times bestseller list, you only have to sell around 5000 books in your first week, which is not huge, but it's a lot, but it's a lot to get in there. But that's 5000. It's not 25,000. Right. So unless you continue to be a bestseller for weeks and weeks and weeks, it's hard to get through 25,000 in, you know, of a coffee table book. So just to put all that into perspective, as Marcellus tells the story, because sometimes we say these things and again, He's talking to me. We know the shop. We know what's going on. But all of you out there, sometimes it can you may be wondering. So there's a bit more detail, a bit more color for you. Carry on, Marcellus. Thank you so much, Nigel, because that is an important distinction um, and description of the process that I found myself in. I'll say this. A best-selling art book sells 10,000 copies in its lifetime. I'm not supposed to say what my first press was but it was much more than that. I sold during my first Christmas season. It came out in October. I sold 10,000 copies yeah. of Supreme Models. So this book was a bestseller. Like you said, if, this, if New York Times had put something on it, had put art books on its bestsellers list, this book would have been a New York Times bestseller. This book did exceptionally well and it did even better in the fashion press. Every single international and American Vogue wrote about Supreme Models. American Vogue on Christmas Eve 2019 chose it as one of the nine best fashion books of 2019. Amazing. Essence Magazine chose it as the number one book to read on Black Style. This book got so much press. There was only one book with Abrams that did better in the press than mine, and that was Potluck, um, the, the, um, the Questlove book. The book was a juggernaut. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. And like you said, I can't control the fact that you chose to do so many copies in its first press, because if you had done a normal press, it would have sold out. Yeah. So now I'm sitting here feeling like a failure because now this book that's done so well and gotten so many accolades didn't sell tens of thousands of copies. Well, it didn't sell out, right? So it's like it having a it's like having a it restaurant with a thousand seats and you don't sell out. But if you have a restaurant with 
you know, 20 seats and you sell out. I'm a sell, I've sold out. It's, wow. It's like, yeah, limited drop, but it limited drop to so few that you can sell it. Yeah, I get it. But, you know, this isn't also the decision that Marcellus had to make. It was the publisher's decision and it, it costs him on the other end. So there's a lot of politics that goes in, goes on in the behind the scenes in the book world. Um, and also that then they threaten to pulp your books if they don't sell by a certain time, because actually there is a limited amount of warehouse space for these books. And so as new books get published, they need to put them there. So unless your book sells, they're forced to pulp them or they sell them a discount. And as soon as your book goes into the discount world, it changes everything. So there's a lot of politics in the book world, believe it or not. Amazing. It's it's so crazy and you don't, and and this was my first book. I was just happy to write, to, to to write a book that a, that a publisher like Abrams wanted to sell my book that they were willing to take a chance on an ex reality an ex model turned reality star turned author right so i was just happy that they would do this so the book ended up costing $75,000 which was which was double what it was budgeted for i had to pay that out of pocket because you know my advance wasn't that a first time author writing a book about black models I literally was taking out credit cards. I had taken a year off to write the book, to do the research, to, to actually, I was the person that did all the interviews. And then when I found out how much it took um, to have the, not translate the interviews, um, transcribe to, them. to transcribe them. I was the person that had to sit up for hours transcribing each interview. There's like 25 interviews in this book, but I did 40 interviews because 15 people didn't make the cut that, that I'd done interviews. So here I am hours after I put my whole life and heart into this book. When I ran out of my savings, I took out credit cards to pay mm. off the licensing fees, but also to pay my rent and to afford to eat. I loved, I believed in this book and I believed in this story wholeheartedly. Wow. And the book came out in October and we were ready to pitch Supreme Actresses in January. And that was only what, four months. And so a book, you're gonna be doing, a, you're gonna be doing press for like a year for the book, two years for the book. And so maybe we tried to pitch Supreme Actresses too soon, but we thought that Supreme Models had been such a success, we were ready and I was ready. And Abrams passed on it. And the day after they passed on it, my literary agent dropped me. Hmm. And I was right back where I started from. No book deal, no money in my savings, $50,000 in debt. Mm. And I just had to keep going. How did you pull yourself up? I went back to what I knew. I knew that this book was beautiful and I knew that it was important. And I knew that somehow it was gonna be successful. And so I just started pushing the book everywhere I could. I was reaching out to editors at magazines. I was reaching out to people that I had worked with as a TV host. I was doing everything I possibly could. I was traveling out of pocket. Nobody does book tours anymore. 
and this I was, book, but, this, but this book, the Supreme Actresses book, is printed by Abrams, right? So that they end up picking it up, or what happened in the end? I'll tell that story. So, Supreme Models did what it was supposed to do. It continued to sell, and it continued to get press. Then the pandemic hit, and everybody was like panicked and was like, "What are we going to do next?" And everybody's trying to figure out their lives and blah blah blah. So one day I was sitting at home literally trying to decide if I was going to have fish sticks. No, if I was going to have tater tots or, fish or, or, or french fries with my fish sticks from my air fryer. And my, and my publisher called. And the one who dumped, the one who dumped you? The one who, passed, the one who passed on my second book. Okay. She called and she, and I, Nigel, I thought somebody was suing me. That was the first place I went. I was that low. I was like, why is she calling me? Some photographer is suing me, some mob, something, somebody is suing me. <laughs> so I picked up the phone and she was like bright and sunny. And she was like, how are you? How are you feeling? How are you doing in the pandemic? So we shot, you know, we shot the, the shit a little bit. And um, she said, I'm sorry, I'm. Um, no, please. That caught me off guard, um, that part of the journey. Um, um, she, so she said, listen, um, your book has started selling again. And she said, yesterday it sold a thousand copies. Wow. And I said, what? And she said, yes. She said, when the pandemic started and all the protests started, all of these black books started going, started selling like crazy. And they all started going to number one on the New York Times bestsellers book. And one of the books that started selling like crazy was Supreme Models. And it went to like, it, it, like there was like 200 in one day, 400 in one day, 500 in one day. And it culminated in like a thousand in one day. So she called me up and she was like, have you thought about, have you started trying to sell Supreme actresses someplace else? And I was like, no, because it's a pandemic. Like, I'm just trying to survive. I was on unemployment. And she was like, well, if we want the book and can you give it, can you get it to us in six months? And I was like, can I get it to you in six months? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yes. And um, eight months later, I had Supreme Actresses. She, ha she had that first draft in six months and she had it completed in eight months. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a story. That's a serious story right there. I mean, what was the, so we talked about the criteria of making it into Supreme Models. What about Supreme Actresses? I mean, this is, this is a different business, but what, what was the criteria there? Um, Supreme Actresses for me just feel so much weightier and so much more serious because it's literally the history of the Black model in, of the Black actress, excuse me, in Hollywood. And if you think models had a tough time, actresses in Hollywood had the toughest time. It starts in the 1890s with Josephine Baker. Right, sure. With her birth. And so it's really at the turn of the century. And it goes through like this weird period in Hollywood that's called the golden age of Hollywood. But that was the age when the, there, was a, there was a law in place called the Hayes Code, which actually said that Black people could not be presented in film as equals 
to white people. So you have black people only being able to be presented on film as slaves, as mammies, as maids, as porters, and you get this sort of um, happy black slave thing that's going on, or you get the tragic mulatto that you know that's a victim of her whiteness or her her being closer to white, and it's it's those it's those stories to me that are in this book that are the most impactful. Someone like Lena Horne, who was the second black woman to get a, a movie contract, but didn't want to play a maid in a movie, and Hollywood didn't know what to do with her. So she ends up leaving Hollywood. And that's when she goes to Broadway and that's when she becomes a singer because she refuses to play a maid or a slave. Or you've got somebody like Josephine Baker who leaves the United States because she doesn't want to play a maid or a slave on camera. It, it, like these stories are amazing. Or you've got Hattie McDaniel who does play a maid in Gone with the Wind and wins an Oscar becoming the first black person period to win an Oscar and the black community turns its back on her because she portrays a maid in a movie right she go the night she wins her Oscar it's at a segregated hotel it's at the Roosevelt here in in California the hotel is segregated she can't sit with her co-stars and gone with the wind so she has to sit at the back of the hotel when she is announced that she wins, she comes all the way from the back, gives this beautiful speech, and then has to leave. These stories are heartbreaking. Oh. And somehow these women persevere and continue to create art with dignity. And I wish I could say that things were like, quote unquote, better now in Hollywood. But then you hear these, I did an interview with Vivica Fox. She talks about the state of Hollywood. I did an interview with Gabrielle Union's forward is fire. Yeah. And she talks about um, uh, the competition between black actresses, the lack of, of, of equitable pay between black actresses and white actresses. It's unbelievable. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that was kind of why I wanted to write both of these books. There were models and supreme models and there were actresses and supreme actresses that I didn't want to be lost to history. That deserves somebody to recognize what they had achieved. You talk about moments in the book when people have moments. And I guess like there are these, you know, everyone sort of, I mean, people have moments is what makes them special, but there are moments in history too, that they're changing, aren't there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm having a moment right now with the success of both these books and now flipping Supreme Models into a documentary and partnering with Iman to do that. But I think for me, the moments are like these things where it pushes the culture forward, right? So if we're talking about Supreme Models, it's definitely Donya Luna on the cover of British Vogue, definitely Beverly Johnson on the cover of American Vogue, right? Those are, and Tyra Banks on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Those are the moments. But then in Supreme Actresses, a moment is definitely Hattie McDaniel winning the Oscar. That's a moment even being, even being nominated for an Oscar. And she's the first black actress to be nominated for an Oscar. And I think it was like, I think it was like 50 years before someone else was nominated. No, it was, um, 
It was it, like that. 50 years, was, right? Right. It was like Dorothy Daniels was, Dorothy Dandridge was nominated in like the 1950s. And she became only the second Black actress to be nominated. So it was like 50, it was like, yeah. 19, it was like, it was like 20 years um, because she became the first Black actress nominated for Best Actress. And then when Halle Berry became the first Black actress nominated Win. to win, that was like the first, and that was like 50 years. She's the first Black actress, am I, am I not, am I incorrect? She's the first Black actress to win Best Actress. Yes, yes. And only one of like three to be nominated, maybe even, right. yes, because Viola Davis was nominated. Um, so there are like these crazy like moments that push the culture forward. I, I decided to single out even Dream Girls on Broadway as a moment because Dream Girls on Broadway was the first black super play yeah. that showed that people will come to Broadway and see a cast that is all black because Dream Girls broke records on Broadway and Dream Girls broke records in its Tony nominations that season. And Dream Girls gave us the gift that is Jennifer Holliday and the gift that is Cheryl Lee Ralph, who were both nominated for Best Actress Tonys in a play. Uh, you know, of course, with Jennifer Holliday winning. So, you know, also another moment that I think is really special that I singled out was the 1974 Oscars, when for the first time ever, two Black actresses were nominated for Best Actress. It was Diana Ross and Lady Sings the Blues and Cicely Tyson in Sounder. Well, of course, well, I don't want to say, of course, they don't, and neither one ends up winning. It's Liza Minnelli for Cabaret. And I'm sorry, as a film buff, Liza, Morel, Liza Minnelli in Cabaret is, is epic and legendary, and she deserved that Oscar. But it was such an amazing moment in Black history and in the history of Hollywood, which doesn't have a, co a color, for two Black actresses to be nominated for Best Actress. That was major. And they were both sitting in the audience that night. Like they like, can you imagine what it would have been like if in 1974 Diana Ross had won the Oscar for Lady Sings the Blues? I don't. You know, when I first went to New York um, in 1992, um, I was with a, <clears throat> an agency called It Models, and um, Stephanie Seymour was at that agency, and uh, there was a guy there called Omar. Uh, and Omar was also had his own agency, Omar's Models, part of It Models. And Omar took me out for dinner one day and I was staying at the Chelsea Hotel, living at the Chelsea Hotel at the time. And he's like, oh, you've got to come for dinner. We're, we're going to hang out with these really cool people. You're going to love it. It's really intimate. There's just going to be about six or so of us um, at the restaurant. Um, and we'll, we'll swing by the Chelsea Hotel and pick you up. Uh, and he swung by the hotel with Robert De Niro, picked me up, took me to dinner with um, Diana Ross, and uh, Robert De Niro, myself, uh, and, and a couple of other people um, of note as well. But I was sitting there as a young 19 year old or whatever, just out of my mind, like, oh my God, like this is insane. Um, it was a different time back then to some extent, but at the same time, you know, it, it, I, the, 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 I just remember Diana Ross's presence was, I mean, I, the only time I've ever come across it before, I would say was when I first met Naomi Campbell um, working when I was working for Chanel in Paris and Karl Lagerfeld 
you know, said we were in a room full of supermodels. And I mean, it was a who's who of every big supermodel in the room. Imagine it was Chanel show at the Louvre, you know, and it, I was one of three male models, all the rest were female. It was the, the women's shows. We were just extras, the guys. But, you know, he said, I, I want everyone to look. This is how we're going to walk this show. Naomi and Naomi just stood up. And she's not the tallest, she's five nine-ish. And she but she walked like she was seven feet tall. And I mean, if when they say there's wind in the hair, there is wind in the hair, people. And you've never seen anything like it. And we all know how to walk, but there's walking and there's walking. And she showed you what the walking was. And after that, I, I could never see anyone really walk again, to be honest with you. She ruined, simultaneously made every fashion show for me and ruined everyone because I compared everyone to Naomi Campbell, which is impossible. Um, <laughs> anyway, I had a similar experience with Dana Ross where she was just held the table in such an extraordinary way uh, and her sort of grace and the, the way she would look at me in, when she talked to me and the dazzle in her eyes, the focus on, on what I was saying, the listening, the follow through questions. I felt when, I, when she spoke to me that I was the only one in the room. You know, so the things I, and I never forgot, never ever in my entire career, and I've met a lot of interesting people, as you know, I've worked, worked with legends in the industry. She's someone who st stood out. So, you know, to your point, yeah, I mean, sort of incredibly impressive individual and no surprise she became a massive superstar, to be honest, right? Um, the superstars, I think, hope, have that thing that they make you, if they turn their glance onto you, they make you feel so special. Because, you know, I've, as a stylist, I've worked with like a bunch of celebrities da, 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 and, as a, and a bunch of models, but there is something about those like certain people that all of a sudden when they turn their light on you, you're literally like dazed. It's almost like when they walk away from you, you're punch drunk, you know what I mean? I, I, my um, moment like that would definitely be Christy Charlington the first time I met her. And I was like, like stunned, stupid, speechless. Like literally. Like, I, I had to get over that pretty quickly myself with Christy because she happens to be, uh, my son was in the same class as her son. So I would see Christy on this on on a regular basis, and I still do. Christy's a good friend of mine now. But um, but it was one of those moments where you know I when I first met her, you know I was like, oh my goodness, this is someone who, you know, I I've always thought was just the most extraordinary, gorgeous person, and now I have to see you on a regular basis. I'm gonna have to get over this. I'm gonna have to realize you're just a human being and deal. I know, fantastic shot of Naomi Campbell and Christy Tellington. You know, Christy will will talk about how. You know, it was difficult for Naomi to get booked um, and, and how, you know, for example, I remember Christy telling me about a story about Dolce & Gabbana, if I'm not wrong, where they didn't want to book Naomi originally. And Christy said that she wouldn't do it unless Naomi did it um, because she knew it was bullshit. And when they then booked Naomi, they loved Naomi so much. They did an about turn and actually stopped booking Christy and only booked Naomi. So there you have it, you know, because <laughs> she was so damn good. At, so. the end of, at the end, um, I'll tell this like little crazy story. At the end of my, like when I was coming to an end of my model career, um, I was in New York for a season and I was, such a stupid story. But I moved to New York because um, I wanted to continue to work. But then I stopped working because I was dating this really rich guy. And I was in love and he didn't want me working. He just wanted me to like, you know, be with him. So that's what I did. But a couple of days a week, I actually worked for Christy Turlington at Sundari, which was her, her skincare company at the time. And one of my jobs was basically to go to lunch with, with Christy when she 
when she worked at the office because she could not walk down the street without somebody like talking to her or trying to touch her. It was the craziest thing. And so I would literally be like the security guard where I would be like, back up, stop talking to her, leave her alone, don't touch her. And we would go to Green and Green. And she would always be like, okay, who are you dating now, Marcellus? What's going on with you now, blah, blah, blah. And she was so sweet and kind to me while I was working for her, right? And so years later, I ended up, well, we kept in kind of kept in touch all, you know, over the years because we would see each other in passing. And years later, I bumped into her at a party for H&M in the Hills. And she was like, oh my God, you look exactly the same. And I was like, Christy, you are the biggest liar on the face of the earth, but thank you so much for being kind. And we just were right back where we started. And I told her that I had sold Supreme Models and I told her what the premise of the book was. And so we end up sort of hanging out the party, but then like, you know, you, you end up moving away from people and blah, blah, blah. And before she leaves, she comes over and she finds me and she goes, I am so proud of you. And that meant so much to me because we knew each other when I was like this kid, right? That was like, just trying to figure crazy stuff out. That was just trying to, you know, live my life. And she was like, do you need any help with the book? And I said to her, I would love it if you would do an interview for the book. And she said, Absolutely. And she like literally starts rattling off. She was like, I could talk about Iman because when I started modeling, Iman was my mentor. And I could talk about, of course, Naomi, because you know, that's my best friend. Da, 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 da. And she wrote an essay for Supreme Models about her relationship with Naomi. And it is one of the most beautiful essays in the book. It is stunning because she also talks about she's she's Latina. Her mother's from El Salvador. And she talks about the importance of diversity and inclusion. And she talks about being a young girl and seeing Latin models on the runway like Dalma. And so that essay is so beautiful. But what's more beautiful and, and important to me is the fact that she actually did it. You know, it's one thing to like say you're going to do something or offer to do it. But she did it. And she did it right. And it was beautiful. Well, you've got two books out, Supreme Model, Supreme Actresses, both published by Abrams. Congratulations. You've got your Supreme Models being made into a docu-series for YouTube. Tell us about that before we, we're, we're over time already, but tell us about it. It's fantastic. You know, I partnered with Iman, legend. Legendary. And what's funny is like now I'm like kind of friends with Iman. Like I talked to her on the phone because we're partners in this. And um Iman would not do an interview for Supreme Models, the book. But when I talked to Iman, Iman told me that her agent never told her about the book. So when he was saying no to her, no to these interviews, she wasn't saying no, it was him that was saying no. But I just think it's hysterical that now I'm doing a, a documentary with her. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's Anna Wintour, Edward Innenfall, um, we're about to interview Anna next week. Then we interview Olivier Ralston from Belmont and then we're done. The first person, this is so crazy. The first person that said yes, the first real like superstar that said yes to doing an interview was Andre Leon Talley. And then he died like two weeks later and it was like crushing to us. But the level of support, of course, because of, of Iman 
is just unreal. But also the level of support from the models, because the, the same energy that I'm getting from the models that are so happy that there's a book out here that's dedicated to them. They're so happy that now there's going to be a documentary that's going to tell their stories in their own words. And I think the stories are heartbreaking. You know, the way that these people were treated. You know, people think that these are the most beautiful women in the world, so their lives must be so blessed. And that's not how that played out. That's not how they were treated in this business, that they still somehow love. And I think, you know, I think it's gonna be beautiful. I think, I think it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be epic. I think it's, I think gonna, gonna, be it's gonna be epic. <laughs> you know what it's gonna be? It's gonna be supreme. And we've been waiting for it, for sure. <laughs> 100%. But look, before we let you go, we've got something on the Chicken and Stir show called Last Orders, uh, which is a little bit of fun and we get to know you a little bit better, Marcellus. So here you go, straight off the top. If you could drink any cocktail from any movie or television show with a character from that show, what and who would it be? Oh my God, easy. easy. It would be, it would be, um, lightly and it would from breakfast at Tiffany's because I like I feel like the black gay Holly Golightly. I'm a little boy from nowhere that came to New York and tried to make it happen. And so yeah, it would be that drink. It would be the it would be that. It would be her. <laughs> Fantastic. There you go. Easy enough. All righty. Who would you have play you in the movie of your life? I would play myself in the movie of my life, even though I'm old as hell, because remember, I was a theater major in college. But there's this kid that was uh, Alfred Innick is his name. And he was on um, How to Get Away with Murder. And he's so super talented. And he's got this, um, I am like a really sensitive person. And I feel things really acutely. And every time I see a performance by him, he has that thing where it's like, you, you, he, he seems to feel what he's doing so like emphatically. So it would be him. And it doesn't hurt that he's cute. <laughs> doesn't hurt that he's cute. And I love it. You're the first person to say that you'd play yourself. I've done this, I've asked this question over 125 times in different interviews. No one has ever said me. You're the first. I've been waiting for it. I've been waiting for it. So there you go. It's the first right here. Fantasy dinner party, Marcellus. You can have three oh, guests, dinner, okay. dead or alive. Who would they be? Marilyn Monroe. And this was before this whole Kim Kardashian nonsense. Jean-Michel Basquiat, because I'm obsessed. And Donielle Luna, the, the model. I'm just obsessed wow. with her. I'm just obsessed with her. So everybody's dead. So <laughs> but everyone's amazing in their own way. And I, I have a, a weird affinity for each person. You know, so yeah, it would be those three. That would be an amazing, epic, epic dinner for sure. What song is your go-to when you make yourself a cocktail? Do you put some vinyl on? Do you put some music on? Is, does it depend on the drink? What's your go-to drinking song? Okay, my, okay. So if I'm out with my friends, there's this song called Swimming Pools by Swimming Pools Drank by Kendrick Lamar. And every time I'm at a bar or at a club, I have to like request that song. So yeah, but it's like the kind of, you know, it, you know, it's, it's the, you know, it's that, just that you put your glasses up and you get into it. You get into the and music, I'm, you're dancing with your drink. I love it. Huge Kendrick Lamar fan. But, um, you know, Seven Rings by Ariana Grande gets me going still. <laughs> now we know, now we know. Final question, shaken or stirred? 
Shaken, of course. Shaken is theater. Shaken is drama. It has to be shaken. <laughs> You've been shaking it up ever since, haven't you? Listen, congratulations on all your success. I know it's been hard work. But you've got there supreme actresses supreme models supreme models is coming out uh, as a show you will be able to watch it on youtube do you have a date for that yes it's coming out this fall for new york fashion week so it comes out like around september 9th so we're super excited fantastic in time for the september edition of vogue will be supreme models it will be right there um look Everyone out there, check out Supreme Models and Supreme Actresses, an incredible book, beautiful, just to look at the weight of them, they're beautifully put together. Abrams also printed my first book. They're a great publisher, they do a fantastic job. Um, and the stories in here are important. We need to know them, our kids need to know them. We need to pass this information down so everyone appreciates the work that has gone in to the successes that we often take for granted. Um, thank you for writing these important books. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. You are a man of heart, you're a gentleman, and really thank you for sharing your stories. I look forward to having you on again when it comes out. How about we, we do this? We have a reunion, we have another cocktail when it comes out and we'll, we'll talk about the show. Um, and, and I love Iman, I've photographed her before a few times. She's wonderful. Uh, and um, you know, she actually used to have a house right around the corner from where I am right now on, on the hill. So I'm living in Woodstock and her house is just literally walking distance from my house. Nigel, have you ever had two people on at once? Um, yes, we've multiple times. We should do both of you. That'll be amazing. Let's do me and Iman. It would be, be fantastic. Epic. There you go. We're, we're set. This is how it works on the Shaken and Stirred show, everybody. Check us out on the Shaken and Stirred show on Instagram. Follow along. As I mentioned, you can watch the show as well on YouTube. Um, and everyone, go out and check out um, this fantastic new books, all these wonderful new books, Supreme Actresses, Supreme Models, Marcellus Reynolds. Thank you very much, my friend. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week and evening. Everybody, cheers. This podcast was produced and edited by Embassy Row.